0: Hi, I'm Jeff Watts, and I wanted to welcome you to the Renaissance Podcast. We are so excited that you have chosen to listen and join with us as we strive to reach the heart of our city with the truth and love of Jesus. And we know that God is doing amazing things in our community, and I am blown away at how many people have told me that Renaissance has provided a place for them to rediscover Jesus. It's given them a caring church family to be a part of, and has helped to transform their lives. If you're one of the men and women who have been encouraged, helped, and strengthened because of what's happening here at Renaissance, then I'd like to ask you to become an investor in what God is doing in our city. And here's one way that you can do that. Go to rendicatororg backslash give and make a commitment to be a part of showing the people of the city of Decatur the truth of Jesus and how much he loves them. Enjoy the podcast and thank you so much for being a part of this community. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Jeff, and I'm one of the leaders here at Renaissance. And today I have um, the joy of of teaching or beginning the the study of a new book in the Bible. If you're new to Renaissance, one of the things that we love to do here is study books of the Bible. So um, for the last year, year and a half or so, we've been studying Acts. We finished Acts Last week, Pastor Joe finished that up for us last week, and so today I want us to turn our attention to another New Testament book. It's actually a letter written by a man named Peter. It's the epistle called 1 Peter. So if you have a Bible with you, you can turn to 1 Peter. If you don't have a Bible with you, um, there's a hardback black one underneath the seat around you, and I think you can turn to page 1014 ish around there. I don't remember exactly where that's at, but you can follow along there. While you're turning there, I want to remind you, if you don't have a copy of the scriptures, if you don't own a Bible, I'm not saying you, you own one but can't find it right now, <laughs> like you've misplaced it or something, but if you don't own a copy, um, please take that Bible that's underneath the seat around you. We buy those specifically so people would steal them from us. <laughs> we hope, did you know the Bible is the most stolen book in all the world? Did you know that? <laughs> yes, you're, you're, you're welcome to steal from here. Um, Just take those Bibles only. Don't take the neighbor Bible next to you. Um, But anyways, what we want to do is as we start studying this uh, book, uh, 1 Peter. Um, I pray that we'll be encouraged in it. I'm not 100% sure how long we're going to be in the book. I'm convinced it will take us to Christmas and maybe into the first part of next year. Uh, We like to take our time when we study. So while you're turning there, I want to tell you a quick story. Um, One of the things that I'm so thankful for... um, One of the gifts that my parents gave me, and I don't know that I've ever thanked them for this. In fact, my mom is sitting right back there. I'm not looking at her because I don't want to embarrass her, but she's right there. She's right there. (laughs) I don't know where my dad is. He must be sleeping at home, I guess. Um, Anyways, one of the greatest gifts they ever gave me was an older brother. I'm the younger sibling, the tornado in the family, basically. Younger siblings are just a wreck, aren't they? And one of the, the things that I love about having an older brother is it gave me someone to blame for all the stuff that I did wrong. Right. And oftentimes my brother would absorb that punishment, you know, given to him because he knew I, I he didn't want me to be punished to it. Other times he didn't even know that I was setting him up. I would break a cup or a vase and I would just gingerly put it back together and leave it on the counter and he would come up and touch it. It would shatter and I'd go, What did you do? <laughs> But having an older brother gives, gives, someone, gives me someone to blame. And, and blaming other people is just part of the human condition, isn't it? It's as old as humanity itself. In fact, if you look into the Bible in Genesis chapter 3, when, when Adam and Eve right placed in a garden, a beautiful place created by God, uh, told to go and be fruitful and multiply, live, tend the soil, eat from all of the trees you want to with the exception of one. You know that story. You can't eat from this one tree Right. And what does Adam and Eve do? They eat from that one tree. God comes into the garden. They're hiding from him. What's happening? What are you guys doing? And he looks to Adam and Eve and Adam points to Eve and said, she made me do it. Right? She, my wife, the one you gave me. He tries to blame God in this too. He says, the one, the one you gave me, she gave me the apple and I ate it. And then God turns to Eve and says, and you have anything to say? And she goes, the serpent who came in and deceived me made me do it. So we, we are all about blame shifting, trying to push the blame onto other people. And this is probably wise at some point because whenever big, terrible tragedy things or, or horrible things happen in the world, um, the first thing we like to do is look for someone to blame. Now, I'm bringing all of this up because I think Peter, who's writing this epistle, 1 Peter, is is writing to Christians, as we'll soon see, because um, persecution is breaking out in the church at a level and a force of magnitude that the world has never seen. And the reason for that is this, probably, this is what we think is that in 64 AD, Rome burned. You guys know the story. Nero the emperor was fiddling, supposedly, while Rome burned. The backstory of this is that Nero had a a desire to rebuild Rome. He wanted to build Rome, but the Senate kept telling him, no, we're not spending the money on rebuilding Rome. So the, the argument goes that Nero set fire to Rome, or had someone set fire to Rome, and as it burned 10 of the 14 provinces to the ground, they began to be angry at Nero for supposedly Setting this fire. Blame was immediately placed upon Nero, and Nero does what every good person would do he looks for someone else to blame. And who does he blame? He blames the Christians. Now, this is is important because, in blaming the Christians, because there was such devastation in Rome, the people. Truly despised Christians. You and I aren't liked much because of our beliefs. I get it. But by no means have we faced the level of persecution that these people faced. They were imprisoned because they believed in Jesus. Many times they would gather the community into the Colosseum. They would drag those Christians out of the cells, sew animal skins onto them, place them in the middle of the Colosseum and let wild beasts devour them alive while everybody ate popcorn and clapped for this. At one point, Nero in his garden behind his palace is throwing a barbecue. Right? And he needs some light as the party goes into the late hours of the evening. So he has this wonderful idea. Grab some Christians, dip them in tar and bitumen, tie them to a pole, and light them on fire alive to light my barbecue so that we can enjoy ourselves. The persecution that came against Christians was great, and Peter, having been in Rome at this time, can see what lies ahead, that this persecution will sweep across not just Europe, but over into Asia and Asia Minor, and it's because of that he writes this letter to them. We talk about faith, hope, and love in the church. And we oftentimes spend a lot of time talking about faith, a lot of time talking about the love of God. And we have not much conversation about this hope. This letter is hope for Christians. If you ever want to find hope for your life, regardless of circumstances, we were singing earlier in It Is Well, regardless of circumstance, you start here, here in 1 Peter. This is a letter of hope. So my desire in the few minutes that I have left with you is to possibly get through a verse or two. So let's read verse 1 and 2 together and see um, what we can get done in our time together. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ for the sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. There is so much in just those few verses, heavy theological concepts, like the foreknowledge of God. And if you're one of those nerds, people who like to get into that sort of stuff, and I'm one of them, so I make fun of myself. Like, we'll get there at some point, right? We'll talk about the foreknowledge of God. What does that mean? We're gonna talk about the work of the Holy Spirit in our, life, in our lives as he sanctifies us, as, as, as Peter's talking about here. We'll also talk about obedience to Christ and, and all of these things. But the thing that stuck out to me most when I read these first two verses is, in fact, one word. The first one. Peter. Peter is writing this letter to us. And for us to even go forward in our understanding of this, we must understand who Peter is. See, Peter is not, Peter's actually not his name. Did you know that? His name is, is Simon. His mommy and his daddy call him Simon. Simon means read. It means read. Peter, when, when, when Peter first meets Jesus, Jesus sort of changes his name to, to Peter. And it's not so much a name as it is a title to him. It's 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 a it's a um, it's an understanding of who Simon was to become. Peter means rock. Have you heard that before? So where a Simon means a reed, maybe something that's blown to and fro in the wind, maybe something that kind of grows in one season to wither in the winter to come back the next season, very temporal in its lifestyle. Jesus says, I'm changing that, Peter. I'm going to call you the rock from now on. There's a stability that Jesus gives to Peter that he can't find anywhere else. Peter was a significant person in the New Testament. We possibly know more about Peter than any other person in the Bible, with the exception of maybe Paul. Peter is listed in all four of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In fact, Mark's gospel was probably penned by Peter through Mark. Everything that Mark is writing, he's learning from Peter, and my favorite part of this is Peter reminds Mark to tell him all the dumb things he did in his life right? Peter's that guy we always say. He's always putting his foot in his mouth, making the mistake. He acts unreasonably at times. He's just like flying off the handle all the time. And Peter makes sure Mark tells everyone about that. For those of you that are like him, right, we should be thanking him that we get to see his his inadequacies, his brokenness, and his failures before God. And yet God still uses him. Peter, the, the leader of the 12 disciples, the spokesman truly, When Judas the betrayer turned on Jesus and sold him out for 30 pieces of silver, it was Peter who'd instituted or initiated, rather, the idea of replacing Judas. Jesus had 12 disciples. We need another one now that Judas has hanged himself in remorse. So he says, let's find a replacement. It was Peter on the day of Pentecost after the Holy Spirit been given to us by Jesus Christ who comes to the earth to indwell the believers and in great boldness and power, Peter stands up and speaks to the multitudes about the crazy stuff that's happening in this upper room. Somebody say Amen. Tongues of fire, unknown languages, a mighty Russian wind. The people are in town going, what on earth is happening? Peter, with boldness from the Holy Spirit, stands up, preaches the message of Jesus the Messiah. 3,000 people come to faith in Jesus that day. Peter. The man who brings on the 12th disciple, the man who preaches the first sermon. In Acts chapter 3, he, he and another disciple, John, are making their way into the temple. There's a lame beggar from birth, lame from birth, had never walked in his life, and they carried him every day to the temple where he would... He would plead or beg for alms, something to provide just a simple sustenance for his life as people made their way to and fro in the temple. And as Peter and John are walking in, this beggar looks at Peter and says, hey, can I have something from you? And Peter looks him square in the eyes and says the most famous words, silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. Peter does this. Peter has such authority in the work of God in his life that when he was walking down the street, they would drag hurting and broken people out into the sidewalks in hopes that Peter's shadow would fall upon upon him, hoping that they would be healed. This is Peter, but he wasn't always this way. He wasn't always this guy. In John's gospel, we see that that Peter actually denied Jesus. Having walked with him for three, three and a half years, he decides on the eve of his arrest to say, I don't even know that guy. I want you to turn with me to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. The story... plays out that um, this will be review for many of you, so forgive me. I just have to get my mental space right. <laughs> so Jesus has been um, betrayed by Judas. The soldiers come to arrest him. Uh, some of the disciples freak out, i.e. Peter, <laughs> lops off a guy's ear. Jesus says, moron, picks it up. <laughs> Maybe not. I don't know. That's what I would say. Puts it back on his head, heals the guy, right? The, the soldiers arrest Peter, or Jesus rather, they take him off and they take him to the, the high priest's house. And in the courtyard of the high priest is the scene that we're entering in right now. John, the other disciples, the other disciple goes into the, 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 the house of the high priest and Peter stays outside and he's outside and the servant girl, it says right here in verse 17 of chapter 18, there's a servant girl at the door and she says to Peter, are you not one of that man's disciples? I mean, you were with him, weren't you? And, and Jesus had previously said that Peter would deny him three times, if you know the story. And Peter begins the first of his denial right here. He says, no, I am not, I'm not with him. I'm not with him. And he says in verse 18, now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire. Interesting about this phrase, charcoal fire. It's only used two times in all of the Bible, and both of them are in John's gospel which is really cool. We'll get to that in a minute. But, but we see the first one here. There's a charcoal fire here. And because it was cold, they were standing outside and warming themselves. And, the, the, and John tells us that Peter was outside with them, standing and warming himself along. Now, in all the studies that I did this week, I ran across a, an old sermon from another pastor who, who taught on this passage. And he makes a, makes a poetic, um, a beautiful uh, interpretation of this passage. And I want to share it with you. He says that when Peter who should have been drawing close to Jesus in those last moments, chooses to stay outside and away from him. Instead of finding comfort and solace with Jesus to help him through the trials that he was about to endure and the, the suffering that he would eventually endure, he decides to leave that and warm himself over a charcoal fire around the enemies of God himself. The soldiers, the officers, and the servants are warming themselves at this fire, and it's as if Peter himself joins into that worldly warming instead of being close to where Jesus is. And this pastor goes on to say that that we too oftentimes see that in in our world, that when things are going tough, instead of running to where Jesus is, we, we warm ourselves with worldly fires like greed and lust and power and worthlessness and selfishness. And on and on it goes. Instead of staying close to Jesus, Peter slipped away. And he continues to deny him two more times. The same girl asks him, no, no, I'm pretty sure you're with him. Your accent's Galilean. Northern, Judah, right? is, that, is that you? He's like, "No, I'm, I'm not with the guy. And she asks one more time, are you sure? Because you look like someone I've seen before with that guy. And He finally cusses her out. I do not know him. This is the Peter who stands here and writes these first few words in this epistle. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Does Peter sound like an apostle, a chosen one with authority for interpretation of the the gospel of Jesus? Does this sound like Peter? No, he sounds like a broken man who's denied his savior three times. How on earth does he get to this place? How on earth does he become someone who's turned uh, his, his life around to follow Jesus, to then deny him in the last hours of, of his life, to then be reinstated as an apostle? What is taking place here? And if we can understand this thing that God has done in Peter's life, then you and I will see the tip of the iceberg of hope that God has for each of us. Oh. many of us in this room have pledged our allegiance to Christ our Lord to only turn your back on him when another better, shinier thing comes along. Haven't we? And yet God is able to use Peter in a profound way. And and maybe the hope for us is that God could also use us in a profound way. And maybe you're thinking, Jeff, I don't want to be used (laughs) too bad. (laughs) You're on the wrong team then. I don't know what to tell you. To call Jesus Lord means that Lord is spelled with a capital L, which means he leads, you follow. He's not wicked and cruel and mean. He would never make you, force you to do anything you'd never want to do. But I promise you, the things you're not doing for him are not because of him. They're because of you. They're because of you, because you don't have faith to believe that he is good. You don't have faith to trust him in those things. That's why I don't do things for him. And we see Peter in his his poetic, eloquent salutation. Peter, comma, an apostle of Jesus Christ. You you need to understand that that is not who he was. His, His mom and dad called him Weedy or Reed to come and go, to be blown to and fro. But Jesus says something else. You're called the rock. We flip further into John's gospel. John chapter 21, if you want to flip a page over. After after Peter denies Jesus three times, Jesus is whipped, beaten, beaten, brutalized crown of thorns thrown on his head you know the story they nail him to a cross they hang him up for all the world to see they walk by they spit at him they curse him they tease him they mock him jesus finally gives up his life in the afternoon they bury him in a grave and on the third day god raises him from the dead hallelujah like if your heart didn't leap in that moment see if you're still breathing god raises jesus from the dead And because of that, we too have hope of the resurrection in Christ. By grace through faith, we get that. So anyways, so Jesus is alive, amen, and he's walking around and he's seeing his disciples. He's spending time with many of them. And at some point he disappears again. I don't know what this looks like, but in John's Gospel, chapter twenty-one, Jesus makes his return. And right before he comes back to, to see his disciples like this one last time, Peter and some of the other disciples, they sort of give up on this life of waiting around for Jesus. It's the the best way I can see it. They finally say, you know what? Peter leads the church. He says, I'm going fishing right? You know this story. He says, I'm done with this. I'm going back to what? To fish. What is, what is Peter's name before he was Peter the apostle? He was Simon the fisherman, right? Peter is saying, I want to go back to my old life. It's the only way I can see this. I'm not trying to spin this. This is what it looks like to me. You hear me? He says, I'm not going to follow Jesus anymore. I'm going to go fishing. He grabs a couple other disciples. They all go out fishing. And I love this part. They fish all night. And guess how many fish they catch? None. I love it. Jesus is like, yeah, try that out and see how it fits. <laughs> Nothing. And so they're tired, exhausted, having fished all night. They're coming back to shore and there's this strange man sitting on the shore and he calls out to them. Hey, bros, did you catch any fish? And they're like, no. And then this man says, well, throw your nets on the other side of the boat. Right. And you know the story, they throw them over there and they start to haul in fish, so many fish that they almost can't haul them all in. And it's in this moment, moment Peter's eyes go, oh, I know who that stranger is. It's Jesus. And he, he jumps into the water and just starts swimming to shore. And when he gets there, we enter this scene right here. John's gospel, chapter 21, verse 9. When they got out on land, they saw what? A charcoal fire. They saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. I mentioned to you there's two places in all of the New Testament where there's charcoal fire. Why am I crying? I'm like, I won't even say what I'm doing. I think John is doing the most beautiful thing for us. He's he's writing this gospel. He says, you remember a few verses ago and Peter is warming himself at the fire of God's enemies and Jesus sees this. He knows this and he calls them onto the shore and he sets himself a charcoal fire and calls Peter back unto himself. And on this charcoal fire, there's food and provision. They have breakfast together. And skipping down to verse 15, Jesus then starts this famous exchange with Simon, the fisherman, and he says this, when they'd finished breakfast, Jesus says to Simon, Simon, son of John, remember that's his name, but didn't Jesus say, I'm going to call you Peter? And Jesus now doesn't even call him Peter. Why is this? Because Peter has taken on the garments of his old self again. That even though he'd been released from all the the bondage of his own sin, he's been released from everything that he used to be and has a great hope of something better for his life, he chooses to live this old life. And Jesus sees it. And he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he says to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. So Jesus says to him, feed my lambs. And so he says to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he says to him, then, tend my sheep. And he says to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And what does John say? Peter here. He's, I love this. Peter responds as if Peter has some, he's just so frustrated. He says, I'm not Simon anymore. Stop calling me that. I'm Peter. And John John says, yeah, bro. Peter, Peter was grieved because Jesus had said to him a third time, do you love me? Lord, you know everything and you know that I love you. Jesus says to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. John adds this parenthetical understanding here. He says, Jesus said this to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God, to stretch out your arms that Peter would one day be crucified. And if you know, tradition tells us that Peter refused to be crucified right side up because that's how his Lord was crucified. He, he preferred to be crucified upside down. Another side note, after he watched his wife be crucified, this is, um, this, is, this is the call that God has placed on our lives sometimes. That he's imprisoned, his wife is imprisoned, they drag Peter out, sit him on a bench while they crucify his wife in front of him. The whole time he's crying out to her, remember the Lord, remember what he's done, remember what he's done for you. As she breathes her last, and as soon as she is dead, they nail him to a cross. In pleading and begging with them, he says, please do not stand me upright like Jesus. Turn me upside down. After all of this, Jesus turns to Peter at the end of verse 19 and says these two words. He says, follow me. He says, follow me. This is the call of the Christian to follow Christ. How does Simon the fisherman... Simon, the son of John, become Peter, the apostle. Where does this happen? It happens right here. Jesus tests his heart and looks for love. It's the one thing that gives gives us the ability to suffer long with other people. Listen, husbands and wives know this, yes? Right? Your, Your husband, your spouse can drive you absolutely insane some days, but if it wasn't for the love that you have for each other, You'd bounce. The love is the thing that keeps the commitment together. This is why Jesus is asking him, Do you love me? I don't care if you can get another disciple to take Judas' spot. I don't care if you can do all kinds of miracles and shadows are healing people and lame people are walking, all kinds. I need to know this before I do something significant in your life. Do you love me? He says. <laughs> you know I do. And then he says, Bet. My words. <laughs> Follow me. So we jump back to Peter, the first Peter, the epistle written to the Christians who are in now what is modern day Turkey. He starts his greeting with Peter, an apostle of Jesus. Do you understand that he wasn't always that? Do you understand that he was very much like you and me, a broken, sinful person that God was able to, to change? to effect change in his heart that would forever change what he would do in his life. Do you see the hope that Peter is writing in those three words? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Four words? Do you see that? We keep reading in 1 Peter. He says, To those who are elect... Elect meaning chosen by God, right? God has chosen them. Exiles, uh, another word for exiles might be stranger. Another word might be foreigner, sojourner. He says, to those of you who are chosen by God to be strangers, for those, to those of you who have been chosen by God to be foreigners in a land, to be exiled out. What's interesting about this idea of exile, in all of the Old Testament, when we hear about exile, it's usually placed upon Israel because of their disobedience or sin against God. In 722 BC, the Assyrians come down and they ransack all of Israel and they exile God's people into foreign lands. 586 BC, the Babylonians come in and do the same thing again to Israel. Because of their sin, they pushed them out to be foreigners in a foreign land. But that's not what's happening here. There's something else significant. Peter's making mention of it. He says, listen, you have been chosen by God to be strangers in the place where you already live. You're exiles where you are. And what is he alluding to here? It's this idea that we as believers... That we are no longer citizens of this world, but citizens of where? Of heaven. Think about this. That our citizenry is there now, not here. And the closer we become um, more like Jesus, the, far, the longer we follow after God, we become more and more strange to those people around us. Don't we? Their, their beliefs stop being our beliefs at some point, don't they? Um confession time. There was a well, All right. Can I say it? You're like, "You yeah, say it." <laughs> My favorite part about church is when Jeff confesses the ridiculousness of his life. I think I laugh at off-color jokes too much. I think I laugh at jokes at the expense of other people too quickly. I think I find humor in dark things some days. And when I consider that, I begin to wonder, well, then I'm no, I'm no different than the, the non-Christian next to me. I wonder sometimes, <laughs> Joe, Pastor Joe and I have, had, have these conversations all the time. Like, Joe, are we really set apart? Are we different? Is, is what Peter's saying here, are we strangers in this land? Because it feels like we fit in pretty nicely. It feels like if someone was to walk up and listen to our conversation, <laughs> and then if, if someone walked up and said, hey, Pastor Jeff, hey, Pastor Joe, that their minds would explode that, that, that we're pastors of a church. Anyone? I don't feel so strange in this world sometimes. And yet Peter's saying this. You've been chosen by God to be a foreigner in the very place that you live. This is God's purpose for you. And he says in, to the dispersion, and this idea of dispersion is, the, is a, it's, it's a reproductive idea of scattering seed, this, this is by God's design that he would scatter his people into places using persecution to do it. Many people run when things get tough. That's okay. You just can't run from the will of God in your life. I'm just telling you. And that God disperses his people into these other places and causing them forever and always to be strangers and foreigners, exiles in their own land. Because their citizenship, again, is in heaven. And he's speaking of all of this. He writes to these chosen people who struggle, continue to struggle with alienation. Let me ask you this. Are you struggling with your alienation? Are you struggling in this? I I confess I'm not some days. God forgive me. Verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience to Jesus Christ for the sprinkling with his blood. Oh my goodness, we could spend a month on that. I have two minutes and fifty-three seconds. Can I just can I just point out one thing that I just we need to see? This is all of the Trinity at work here. People argue, well, I don't see the word Trinity in the Bible, and they don't think God is three in one, but he is. We see Right, the foreknowledge of God the Father, the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, and obedience to Jesus Christ—all three of these things are working together in our lives. I'd love to spend a bunch of time here. I can't. Um, I might do some more of this next week. We'll spend some time on this next week. I just want to close with this last little idea. He finishes his greeting, his salutation, with this: "May grace and peace be multiplied to you." grace, the unmerited favor of God. Listen, I had a pastor friend tell me once that when he sees the word grace, he always envisions that like a construction sign. You know the construction signs that says uh, men working ahead or something? He goes, whenever I see the word grace, I see the words God working in my life. So when, when, when people talk about may grace be upon you, it's, it's the mercy and the unmerited favor that God is giving to you as he continues to work in your life. Peter understands this as a person who, oh my goodness, has received more grace than should be allowed to be given to any one person. With the exception of you. Huh. with the exception of me. <clears throat> May grace and mercy, no, grace and peace, sorry, be multiplied to you. Peace, not just the absence of strife or struggle, but peace, the Hebrew idea of shalom, where everything is exactly the way it's intended to be. That's the peace that Peter speaks of. That's the peace that Peter had to navigate through with all of his brokenness and his his wily ways so that God could pull him back unto himself to reorient his life to be used by him alone. The peace is the settledness that you're doing exactly what God intends. Let me ask you a question. Are you doing exactly what God intends for you? Yes or no? Are you? God, may grace and peace be settled upon us. May grace and peace be multiplied upon us. May it be given to us in greater measure than we've ever experienced before. And may our names change from Jeff the Alcoholic. Pastor Jeff. From John, the wayward husband, Cheryl, the mischievous wife, the. I'm making names up just so you know. (laughs) Like, don't say Randy, don't say Randy, don't say Randy. (laughs) Randy, the rebellious child. May our names be changed to something else. Guys, when you go home, Peter, 1 Peter's five chapters, you'll read it in the time it, this is gross, in the time it takes to go to the bathroom. And you'll read those words, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and may it knock the breath out of you. May it change you right where you are. Because it's not who you used to be. God is doing great things in your life. I I am an absolute, complete mess. I think I need a day off. Um, I just feel like I've burned out. I'm so thankful that today is the day we get to come together as a church and take communion and to remember. Uh, One of the things that I skipped over real quick in that 1 Peter, he says that there's a sprinkling of blood that takes place, which sounds so bizarre. But if you know your Old Testament, you know there's a moment in Exodus chapter 20 through 24 or so where where Moses goes up on the mountain and he communes with God. He meets with God and God does this really cool thing where he writes something on stone tablets. You've heard of it. It's the commandments. And he comes down. Moses comes down and he talks to the people and he puts all of the commandments before God and says, listen, this is the requirement of the relationship that God demands of us. And the people say yes. Yes. The people say, Yes, we will do that. We will be obedient to those things that God has laid before us. And Moses takes an animal, sacrifices it, and he sprinkles the people with blood. What? What is this he's doing? It's a covenant. It's a covenant marked with blood. He's saying, You're my people. This blood will cleanse you and it's a picture of Jesus who is to come. Jesus would die on a cross for you and for me. And Peter's reminding of that, right reminding us of that that we have been sprinkled with the blood of the lamb Jesus, forever marked to be his. So today we take communion take little cups of juice to symbolize the blood and little crackers to symbolize his broken body. And when we do that, I want you to consider, when you consider the new person that God wants you to be and take hope in that first line of that book, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray, and while I'm praying, people are going to come down. They're going to station themselves to serve you, communion. Let's pray together, shall we? Real quick, thank you guys for being my therapist. Any moment you guys want to send me an invoice, I would gladly throw that in the trash. It's fine. But this is really helpful to me. I hope it helps you. Thank you, guys. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for our time together. I pray we do find ourselves encouraged. I pray God that you would multiply grace and peace upon us. I pray as my friend Ben comes up to share with us about the significance of communion in his life that we also would be encouraged by his words. I thank you for your son, Jesus. I thank you for your Holy Spirit. Father God, I thank you for for thinking about me and choosing me. And we say all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Together we can reach the heart of Decatur. And if you'd like to be a part of that, go to rendecatur.org give and make a commitment to be a part of showing the people of the city of Decatur the truth of Jesus and how much he loves them.